call is being recorded. Hello and welcome to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our countries suffer from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. We have as our guest today, Dr. Trevor Campbell, who is the author of his new book, The Language of Pain, Fast Forward Your Recovery to Stop Hurting. Dr. Trevor is a family physician who studied medicine at the University of Cape Town, South Africa, before immigrating to Canada, where he began treatments for chronic pain. Dr. Trevor, are you there? Yes, I'm, I am, John. Hello. Very, very good. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting look, me, John. Yeah, the information you provided was spot on. It's, it's, it's very, uh, very readable. Uh, I was, I, I was impressed by the bibliography. <laughs> you've, you've got nearly a hundred listings there. <laughs> it was, yes. uh, I, I thought that was very impressive. <laughs> it was put in mainly because uh, people often, you know, tell their physician they've, they've got this book and the physician would like to, well, who, who wrote it and stuff. And at least if there's some evidence-based material in there, I feel that the treating physician, if they do choose to tell her or him about it, will will be more comfortable with that. Well, uh, I thought it was a, a nice thing. I, I was impressed by it. I'll say that again. Well, thank uh, you. I, I, I pulled a lot of items from the, the, the summary of talking points, I guess. Um, yes. One of which was called the... Be aware of the meltdown strategies and use them. Could right. you elaborate on that for us? Right. The meltdown strategies, often when people, because pain is heavy, chronic pain I'm talking about, not when you immediately injure yourself, when chronic pain has developed over time, it's more of a condition than a symptom. So what happens is people with chronic pain, the level of their pain they experience is affected by all kinds of other factors, such as not sleeping terribly well the night before or sleeping unusually poorly the night before or emotional stuff, uh, family conflict, anything that puts a stress on them. And this is true of all chronic diseases, actually. So there are times when we see people in a multidisciplinary program. These are treatment programs that, that have psychologists on board, uh, occupational therapists, physios, physicians, a whole lot. And we, they will suddenly seize up with pain. They'll say, no, it's just getting so bad. I, I have to stop what I'm doing. And it's com combined with a, a stress reaction and a panic reaction. And one can reverse this through breathing uh, techniques. Uh, one of which is belly breathing, where you, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, where you consciously breathe out of your belly, and it slows down the breathing, and it does lower pain. There's also the uh, progressive relaxation technique. And all of these can be used anywhere at any time. So it gives a person some feeling of control. 
can even be used in a public place. Uh, you know, someone sitting next to you in a bus may not even know you're doing these techniques. So that's very helpful, and at least it kind of contains the problem initially or somewhat offers control. I see. I see. I, I'm a, um, uh, a user of that um, particular technique, the belly breathing. Uh, a few years ago, the, uh, the VA, Veterans Administration, uh, right. diagnosed me as of having PTSD. And okay. there were there were times when I'm, for instance, speaking, speaking about the book that I wrote, those type of things. Sometimes it could become emotional. Yes. And yes. way I control that emotion is, again, I start mine a little higher. I start mine in my heart and let it go through my stomach. Right. And that, that calms me. And I like to think right. about it as, um, as moving from chakra to chakra as I push it down and out. Right. Uh, is right. what I do, and it 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 works for me. If if I begin if I begin it at the beginning, if, if I try to j jump into it in the middle, it doesn't work so good. Right. No. No. It it is something that with practice can become. I once did it on a plane, not on a, a long haul flight. I was a thirteen hour flight, and I developed a um, palpitation, uh, quite a you know every fifth beat being dropped, and I had no idea what what this was about. So you're on a plane, you're stuck, um, and I used it just to not get too agitated about it, and it worked very well. It's what happens is in all chronic diseases, the flight, the fright flight, or the stress reaction, what we call the sympathetic nervous system taking over is not good for you. It's good in the short term. You can outrun the the wolf or whatever you're running away from or fight your battle and get it done. But it does not, it, it is not good for you physiologically. It's a short-term boost of energy that actually is hard on your body. So when you've got chronic pain, you've got all these stresses, uh, you feel your life partly feels out of control or not entirely in your own control. These techniques are incredibly helpful, and they're so simple that people are almost like not over keen to use them in the beginning. It's like, well, what's the catch? This is too easy. If you do it, you will prove it. So, you know, I mentioned those as part of your exit strategies from an acute bout of pain where it's higher than its normal level. Right. Well, I, uh, I see here that one of the items uh, one of the recommendations, of course, would be learn to meditate and try to practice daily in order to lower your stress level and yes. make your inner environment more conducive for healing. Right. Now, um, the, the flight, uh, fright flight uh, situation or environment that we put our bodies in or our bodies get placed in when we have this constant stress is not very physiologically sound for our bodies, which means that we can't function well under those circumstances. And in any chronic disease, anything that can lower your general stress level will help you do better with a chronic disease. While it may not cure it, you will be better on a day-to-day -day basis. So one of the techniques, I had to think here for a broad audience, what is inexpensive, what is easy to do, and what is, um, you know, what, 
what is accessible uh, and with low, very low side effects. Um, that was a good choice. Meditation, there's a lot of misconceptions about meditation. Some people think it's a religion, you're changing your religion. All the, all the re, uh, religious faiths, uh, Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they all have a tradition of meditation. So it's not any religion specific. And it teaches one to focus on the here and now, and it calms the mind. <clears throat> so one of the most important things you learn is that when you're trying to meditate, when you stress, your thoughts come up rapid fire, almost out of control. They call that monkey mind. But with practice, you can start seeing your thoughts as just leaves blowing past you in the wind. You see it's like autumn and the wind's blowing, so you're watching the leaves. And you realize that not every thought we have, any of us, is necessarily a great quality thought. So you realize that a lot of your stress or one stress is caused by different ways of thinking and what I like to call unhelpful ways of thinking. We're human. We have consciousness, uh, a human consciousness, which is the ability to reflect on your own thinking. So we're often criticizing ourselves silently and putting more stress on ourselves. I should have done that. I should have said that. Why didn't I stand up for that? Why did I stand up for this nothing thing event? So this all teaches one that there can be control in a situation like chronic pain where a lot of people describe their lives as being out of control. There's a lot of research out there now on it, and uh, what was um, what was an unusual practice 20, 30 years ago in the Western societies is now becoming very commonplace, and people are getting benefit from it. Well, I can I can see that. Well, let me back up. When I was a young CPA. And, and learning the business and learning what I learned in college. Um, I know that whenever you proceed on an audit, which many companies have to have annually, right. uh, one of the first things you have, your, your basis of the audit is going to be, it's called you know, your basic internal controls. Right. And, and you can either trust, you can trust those internal controls and therefore you don't have to do a whole lot of auditing. Or if the internal controls are, are weak, then you're going to have to do a lot more um, proving up, I guess I should say, what the, what the books look like. Right. So it, it struck me as, as my, this, this is the same thing. Build your in, internal center of control, expand your range of a, activities and skills right. rather than overdoing one or two. Right. That was an interesting point. Okay, now the reason for internal center of control, it's often called internal locus. Locus is just Latin meaning a place, and doctors tend to fall, uh, sort of default to that. But I, it's an internal place of control. So, to, so many times you see a new patient with chronic pain, new to the therapist, and they tell you, that all I get told is be more active and socialize more and get my life to a better level, and the pain will go down because my brain will feel less out of control. And they're kind of tired of that. And they say, well, activity, if you look at the way the, any 
mammal is designed, it's meant to move. Humans are meant to move. There's a problem when we start stop moving. The other thing is with all the languages in the world, uh, how many thousand, and then we still get told by psychologists that 70% of our, about 70% of our communication is nonverbal anyway, then obviously one can draw the same conclusion. You know, this uh, talking and communicating is fundamental to our, our, um, our health and well-being. And we've seen now with this period we're going through where social contact is obviously reduced and so on. So what I tell them is instead of saying exercise, exercise, I said, if you start looking at the bank balance analogy and say, well, look, yes, exercise randomly is good. Any extra activity you can get in that's not harmful is, is probably good at any age. But what are you doing? Is your life shrinking from an activity point of view where you used to play golf, you now can't, don't even go bird watching, and the life is shrinking because part of the response to uh, the, the brain's response to pain is the fact that it feels out of control. It sees this shrinking life uh, and it's kind of like, this is an alarm signal. Now, people say, well, what's pain got to do with your brain? And the answer is everything. Because pain is a sensation. And we, we perceive pain with our brain, even though we feel it in the body part. This shouldn't come as a shock. We don't see with our eyes. We don't hear with our ears. We have the receptors that pick up the information and send it to our brain where it's interpreted. If you get a bash against the back of your head, you'll be completely blind in a certain, if you get it done in a certain way, even if your eyes are perfect. So another way of looking, sorry, I just have to make this point because it's very important at this point. When we have see someone with an amputation, they often have these phantom pains in the hand that's now missing, that was amputated two years ago. So where is that pain coming from? What's happened is that over time, the pain from the crushed hand before it was amputated has formed its own electrical wiring networks in the brain and spinal cord. And those are still there when the hand gets amputated. That's why you can still feel the pain in the part of the body that's gone. So the brain and pain, it's like the electrical wiring in a house. It can become faulty. And... Um, that is why when we build up our internal place of control, we have a bank balance of a broader range of activities. So I say to people, if you're going to do stuff, don't try and you'll get someone who's got a chronic pain in the arm and they want to run a half marathon because they feel that's achievement. Well, it is an achievement. But I would say rather go broad with your activities than deep because your brain is learning new things, feeling competent, feeling more in control so that the pain does not get further amplified as it does often in phantom pain and other conditions where people are very inactive. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. How, how, where does and how does um, addiction enter the room in terms of pain management and so forth? Okay, so addictions is seen as a as a different condition. We often see where the where the, where the very strong association comes in 
is that uh, around about the 90s, uh, 1990, it was about the time I came to Canada, um, I, I noticed just coming from a different part of the world how, how we were encouraged to use opioids for chronic pain. And this was, I was thinking, well, what? You know, this is kind of new because with opioids, I'm not saying they can never be used for a period, but they've got to be closely monitored when used. Because with chronic pain um, and opioids, what happens is you get what's called um, tolerance. So eventually to get the same level of chronic of relief from chronic pain, that dose keeps on going up. And then the higher the dose is, the more you are at risk for, which is the biggest thing we fear is respiratory arrest, which can happen when you're sleeping or addictions, all sorts of other problems with uh, opioids. So that's where a lot of the association between chronic pain and addictions came about. It was mainly uh, in North America that this happened, um, but also some European countries, Denmark is mentioned and a few others. So addiction just implies continued behaviors despite harmful effects. So it's seen as a psychological, psychiatric condition. Chronic pain is where more a condition where you learn to do less and less, like you learn a new language. Everything we've learned, all our skills has come from a, 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 a process called neuroplasticity, bit of a fancy name, but all it means is the brain's natural ability to change itself under certain conditions. If it were not for neuroplasticity, we would not be able to learn anything. We also wouldn't have chronic pain, but it's a hell of a price to pay for not having chronic pain. It's not being able to learn anything. So the good news about neuroplasticity is once you have chronic pain, those pathways can be changed back through certain behaviors, focusing on certain things, and I can come to that, explain that, <clears throat> as well as changing certain ways of thinking. Now, that's not to say you can't use medication periodically or injection therapy or acupuncture, whatever works for you, because the treatment of pain can include many aspects. But if you speak to the top pain experts, they all agree that recovery is unlikely to take place unless you look at these psychosocial things that we've been talking about this morning. So <clears throat> we learn chronic pain, not that we want to, we didn't know we were doing it at the time, and we can unlearn it. You can see changes in people as early as eight weeks when they're in program. The difficulty with a multidisciplinary program is that they're very expensive and they don't go on for much beyond eight or 10 weeks and they cost thousands per week. So the reason for writing this book as a family practitioner was this is what I would like my patients to know who have chronic pain um, because this is what they need to know. And what I've done is I've broken it down into important categories that are doable. No good giving people information. They need insights about the condition. What is causing it? And what can they do? 
We do know that people who tend to develop chronic pain develop an abnormal pain focus early on. And, you know, we, when you focused on something, that's where you head it. You know, as I mentioned in the book, when you learn to drive, the, the instructor said, don't rub a neck to look at the cops on the side of the road stopping this car because you end up swerving. Anyway, um, I don't, is that answer your question? It's not really that the two, the two often coexist, uh, right. addictions and chronic pain, but they're two right. different. Uh, categories I understand I understand my uh, that question comes from my own personal experience I had a knee replacement once upon a time yes and uh, within a within a couple of weeks my my wife called a good friend of mine who's who was a uh, a doc MD and she said come on over here and talk to John uh, he's not the same and and Sure enough, uh, he came over and we sat and I said, by the way, um, you know, it feels like my skin's crawling. And he says, that's addiction, oh, yeah. John. That's addiction. So I got up and, and took the took the pill bottles and gave them to my wife and said, that's it. No more for me. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, opioids. John, I, thank God we've got opioids. If I break my femur, the long bone in my upper leg. I would certainly want opioids because the pain's excruciating. But I wouldn't want to be on opioids if I, it wasn't absolutely necessary for a long time. So mm -hmm. it's not like people are bad-mouthing the drug. The drug has its purpose. And even in chronic right. pain, it can be used where it's very controlled, certain dosage range, range a person's followed up. But as a general, it's not a solution for chronic pain on its own for sure. Right. Let's talk a little bit about, I guess, the potential of telemed or virtual medicine right. involving with this. Okay, so telemedicine is, I'll speak for Canada um, because I'm not that familiar with the United States system, and I'm sure you have many systems of being a, big, a huge country. So telemedicine has been used for, for a while already um, since these programs, have, these platforms have been out. But with the COVID situation where, you know, one couldn't always see a doctor unless it was an emergency, this grew enormously. You know, uh, certain companies, their shares went right through the roof. I believe they probably still are around there. Now, again, mm -hmm. mostly in medicine and in life in general, things are a mixed bag, right? So we can do a lot with telemedicine, and it can handle some things very well, but others not so well. So if somebody is in Canada, very cold, northern areas, I mean, the roads are, you know, untravelable, if that's a word, uh, not viable, I should say. <clears throat> and um, they can't come in and that you can get a certain information and direction over the, te the telephone. Uh, platform um, things like renewing a prescription if you think about it you walk into your physician's office or walking clinic you wait he's sometimes delayed and then he writes a piece of paper and how things going and you out that kind of thing checking results requesting blood tests and x-rays small discussion points 
for if you having a certain if you have a, uh, a certain condition, they can educate you and so forth. So it does very well for that. But now you can't really examine a person. Well, you can't on a tele, on a tele platform. Some of the people who deal with muscle musculoskeletal disorders, they can get you to show your range of movement in your arm and stuff and get some sort of picture. So there's a lot of things that can be can go through the cracks. For example, we've heard that with the COVID, with all the um, emphasis on that, some people have been reluctant to go to an ER or, you know, they they tend to wait longer than they would have, even sometimes with serious conditions, with serious symptoms, I should say. So where this is all headed, I think it's forever changed. It's it's now going to be used more often rather than less. I don't think we can go back to where we were pre-COVID in a hurry. But right. the opportunity, I try always look for an opportunity. <clears throat> you know, there's so much um, that really is to be concerned about chronic diseases. Think about it. Medicine does very well with surgical conditions. Your appendix burst, they diagnose, they fix you up in no time you're out. With trauma, you're in a car crash, they fix you up as best they can, depending on the severity of the accident. Um, you know, any acute disease, <clears throat> by acute I mean something that happens in a short time, like a pneumonia. If we have the right antibiotic, we make the diagnosis. We are very good with that. But medicine does very, very poorly with chronic disorders. And the reason it does is so much needs to be understood by the patient. And chronic pain, by the, by the way, I would say is a chronic uh, disease because it behaves like a disease, not a symptom. And they need to understand things. They need to actively change things. Because one of the things we always say in medicine is first try and remove the cause. If someone's got a problem, if possible, remove the cause. So if someone's got a disorder like chronic obstructive lung disease, uh, airways disease, and it's been acquired mostly through smoking in their case, you're not going to treat the person and not strongly, strongly urge them to give up smoking because you're not removing the cause. This approach to pain that I offer in the book is a collection of things that are well, well known and evidence-based, as we saw from the bibliography. And basically, this helps reverse the brain changes that are unhelpful. It doesn't happen overnight, but it can happen a lot faster, way faster, once it's understood than what got the person into chronic pain. So... I believe that telemedicine could free a lot of these things, like you've got a, a skin rash and they can see it on the, um, on, the, on the computer. It can free a lot of time for, we need longer, con longer consultation times. Uh, what's the consultation time with your physician in, in the States? Quarter of an hour, 20 minutes, half an hour? In Canada, it's about 12 to 14 minutes. And in a walk-in, it could be between five and ten. That is not enough time to treat chronic illness. So it's my personal hope, this is my personal opinion, that when we when we sort of settle in this new system 
uh, with the tele regarding telemedicine I'm talking about, then basically we can maybe manage the quick cases over the platform, computer platform, and really give more time to the chronic disorders. And I think we'll see better outcomes. Because if you look at what countries, even the United States, I don't have the current figure what they spend on um, what you spend on, on health care and then what the outcomes are of chronic disease. It kind of doesn't, you know, it's not encouraging. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just saying part of the problem, I right. do believe, is short times. And the idea in a pill sort of orientated culture where there's a quick fix or nothing, where you, you, you know, people want actually want a quick fix. You can't, there is no quick fix for chronic disorders. It took a long time to develop and there's got to be certain changes. So it implies some work. Perseverance. Like most worthwhile things in life, you could argue, right? Right. Well, Dr. Trevor, this has been uh, enlightening. The information is uh, is such that uh, everybody is, should be interested in, in what you have to say. Um, tell our listeners, if you would, please, uh, how to find you. Okay. So I've got um, a Facebook page at Dr. Trevor. T-R-E-V-O-R, Campbell, like the soup, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L. -L. And the website is trevorcampbellmd.com. That's trevorcampbellmd.com. Now, I've got an online course going, and we're getting reviews from some patients who are testing it. Um, so these are both being tweaked, both the Facebook and the uh, uh, website but you'll be able to, in the future, make contact through that, those two platforms. Well, I want to thank you again for being a guest on our show. And um, I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in yes. to Searching for Integrity. So long and happy trails to all. Thank you.